So today's topic is how Chazal, the rabbis in the Talmud and the Midrash, uh, read Esther. And um, what I'm going to try to try to argue, try to show you, is that they they just read Esther. They totally and systematically reread Esther uh, to, with a, I assume, very consciously knowing uh, what they were doing what they were doing, what the problems were that they were facing in reading Esther, uh, and had a, had a goal, uh, I'm not sure how conscious they were in this goal, had a goal of actually turning Esther into a sort of conventional biblical book. So that's a, that's a, a relatively big claim. Um, I hope I can uh, convince you of uh, most of it this evening. Uh, I want to start with this quote. Uh, at the top of the page, um, b- from a book by Moshe Halbertal, uh, whose book, People of the Book. Moshe Halbertal is a, a wonderful scholar who's written lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in this book, People of the Book, he uh, reflects on what it means for, for the Jews to have a canon, uh, a, a closed set of books which are said to be the authoritative books and the only authoritative books. Uh, although, um, obviously in Jewish history, Jewish literature, that's actually a, not such a simple thing to say. Uh, it's, it's actually somewhat silly to claim uh, that Jews only think that the Bible is authoritative. Uh, it's not even true in any normal sense. Uh, the Talmud is even more authoritative when it comes to, to most matters in the Bible. But, uh, but the Halbertal's book, Reflects on a lot of a lot of uh, related issues, but this passage is what's uh, relevant to our thinking about the Book of Esther. Uh, he's actually not talking about Esther when he says this. He's talking about the Book of Kohelet. But he says as follows: When a book was introduced into the body of scriptures, however, it was required to give up its unique and heretical message. The moment it became part of the scriptural canon, the exegete was obligated to make it consistent with the rest of the scriptures. The new reading means that the original meaning will be lost. Let's refer to that again. What is canon? Canon? Yeah. A canon is, uh, oh, it's used in, in you know, slightly different way, but basically a, a set of texts, a set of books. That's the authoritative uh, collection of books. We can talk about the modern Western canon, you know, the, the books that any educated Western person should, should have read. Um, and then we all pretend to read them, obviously. Uh, Sure. So the so if you say sort of you know you don't want to think too, let's say we don't want to think too hard about it which I think is fair for our purposes you want to say what is the Jewish biblical canon to so say it's exactly Tanakh those twenty four books are the Jewish canon uh, of the Bible um, the uh, Halbertal is claiming something very interesting that there are books that actually might say something he even uses the word heretical um, let's say unique uh, remember he's talking about Kohelet which uh, raises some questions or says some things which might be certainly unique, let's say that. Um, and he says once that book, though, is in the collection of Tanakh, once it's in the Bible, uh, it can no longer be allowed to be certainly not heretical, not even unique. Uh, for us, that's the more important thing. There's a book that's part of Tanakh, it can't be allowed to just say whatever it wants. Um, what, does, what does that mean? I mean, you have a book that says something, so it says something, doesn't it? And of course, the answer is no, it doesn't. It says what we think it says. It says how we read it. And there are different ways of reading books. And uh, when it comes to Kohelet, um, Kohelet asks some hard questions. It 
uh, it seems to say that uh, you know all is nonsense and nothing worthwhile in life, um, which uh, sometimes sometimes resonates. Uh, but at the end, it says at the end of the day, you know, listen to God. So, what's the key theme of the book? So, if you read it, sort of open eyes, you might claim, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but it certainly it's a plausible claim, that actually the major theme of the book is everything's futile, so in an act of desperation, I'll say, listen to God. Uh, but of course, that's not the way that the rabbis read it. The rabbis say, no, 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 the whole point is building up to, you have to listen to God. Because at the end of the day, that's all there is. That's the real, the real central claim of the book. So how would Howard say, does say, in this, in this chapter, uh, that Kohelet actually originally meant that first reading. But actually, things are futile. Things are, are worthless. There's no point to much of what goes on in life. Eh, fine. Listen to God. Um, but, uh, but once it's in the Bible, that's an intolerable reading. No one can read it that way because it's situated in a literary context. Right? You've never said this is a biblical book. That means I have to read it alongside Rishid. And I have to read it alongside Shmuel. And I have to read it alongside Shayahu. And once I'm reading all of those books, when I open Kohelet, I don't see Kohelet, a book standing by itself that has its own voice. I see Kohelet, part of a much bigger discussion, part of a much bigger collection of books, which has, I know, certain major themes. And so Kohelet can't possibly be saying that all is worthless. I know from the rest of the Bible that things are not worthless. I know that there must be a point to life, and that's to listen to God. So I know that the book has to give up its unique voice in order to be part of the Bible. No, so I agree with you. Actually, I think there's actually something, you're, you're putting your finger on something very, very important here. Because there's something very artificial about the way we just said it. That once, let's say Kohelet, although we'll turn to Esther in a second, once Kohelet is in the Bible, now it has to, has to be read differently. Uh, so my question would be, well, if it weren't read differently, would it ever have gotten into the Bible? And we just like fell into the Bible, and then they were like, oh, now we have to read it differently? That can't possibly be what happened. Presumably... People were reading it differently, and that's what allowed it to be considered part of the canon of the Bible. Uh, in other words, the reading, as a religious traditional book, has to predate the fact that it's in the Bible, and not just be a response to the fact that it's in the Bible. Uh, I certainly agree with you. It can't just sort of accidentally fall there and then be required to change its meaning. Uh, that doesn't mean, doesn't mean very much at all. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think you're, you're, you're right that Pavitov sort of uh, blurs the lines a little bit between the process of something becoming a biblical book and the interpretation, which is a very, um, hard to say how conscious it is, but a very deliberate act on the part of the readers who in the end decide what the book is actually about, uh, what the claims are. Did the Bible come first? What's that? This particular book, since it talks about a survival, which book? Esther? I mean, Esther. Yeah. Right. So if so, then then what Howard tells maybe makes sense. Maybe it got in because it talked about an important episode in history. Now that it's in there, now those themes though become a point of, of contention. Now we have to think about them. So we have to talk about Esther. Well, obviously, I'll turn to it in just one second. What were you First before what? He's saying that something came before the Bible or came before the Bible? Well, I guess depending on which part of the Bible you're talking about, lots of things came before all parts of the Bible. Uh, but I, I'm not totally sure what I said that, that you're asking about, but 
the fact that the Bible is. Do you remember what I said? Okay. Um, all right, but uh, when it comes to Esther, of course, there are some some sort of key political identity, uh, the inside-outside questions that um, that would presumably have been troubling to someone sitting down and reading the Bible as a whole. Saying, "Well, I know what a good Jew does because I've read the rest of the Bible," and I turn to Esther and I have some I have some problems. So. Let's start with the most obvious question of the, in the entire book that we actually haven't talked about at all because it doesn't have to do with identity. It doesn't have to do with inside and outside. It has to do with God. Uh, we touched on it. But of course, the most obvious, most famous thing about the book of Esther is what? God. So there is no God. Right. In a literary sense, there is no God. Right. God is just not mentioned in the Bible, in the book at, in the book at all. Um, and we, we touched upon this and said, look, there are actually different ways that one could read that. Uh, one could read it as the author. Let's say, a daring suggestion. Uh, well, I guess the most daring suggestion would be that the author is actually claiming God is not here anymore. Uh, I don't know anyone who actually defend that reading, but that's a, that's a theoretically possible reading. Uh, a, a more toned-down version, um, this one I, I think is more plausible, uh, might be that the author is actually saying, I don't know where God is. I, just, I don't know what to say about it. We're in exile now. I know things worked out well. I, I can't really say for a fact that God is involved. I certainly can't say for a fact that God is not involved. I can explain things naturalistically. I don't mean to imply that this is all there is. I just sort of big question mark. I, I don't know. I don't know about God. Uh, that might have been that might have been the author's uh, intention, uh, but that's certainly not enough if you put Esther into the Bible because the Bible as a whole has some very very strong ideas about God's involvement in history. Right. This is actually one of the issues that the Bible uh, speaks very clearly about. Uh, God is, is deeply involved in history. Uh, if the Jews are doing good. They're listening to God. God will protect them, defend them, save them. If they're doing bad, he'll punish them. Uh, this is one of the one of the major themes. Sort of reading Tanakh from beginning to end, this this has to be judged to be one of the major themes of the entire collection. So, if that's true, and Esther is part of this collection, one might say, it's inconceivable that Esther would disagree. It's not possible that Esther doesn't think that God is involved in history. Of course, Esther thinks that God's involved in history. Tanakh thinks that God's involved in history. But then how do you read Esther? Where, where is God then? So what's the answer that I at least learned first? Where is God in Esther? Hidden. Exactly. It's not a question of whether God's involved or not. It's merely, in the scheme of things, a sort of a, a tactical question. Sometimes God operates overtly, out the open, does things like stop the sun in the sky or split the sea. And sometimes he operates behind the scenes, and you know, if, you don't, if you're not attuned to it, you might not even notice what he's doing, but he's making sure the right person is in the right place at the right time, he's making sure that the, the information gets to the right, uh, right characters, and so on. And of course, uh, Chazal, the rabbi, is in a very, very uh, pithy, uh, well-formulated line. This is the text number one that you have in front of you. Uh, this is actually quoted from the Talmud, from the Moran Huin. Uh, Esther, Esther minayin. Where do we have a hint, or where does the Torah foretell Esther? At the exactly towards the end of Dvarim. And this is actually a, I think this is a great line because the line operates on purpose apparently on two different levels. So listen to it in Hebrew. Esther minayin. So on the surface level, what, what does it mean? What's the question? What's the answer? Where do we find Esther in the Torah? And what's the answer? 
<laughs> yeah, I found words that sound a lot like Esther, right? Esther, Haster, Astir. Oh, so I found Esther foretold in the Torah. So that's, that's on one level. That's clearly intentional. But much more important, clearly, is the, uh, is the sort of the deeper question that the Talmud is apparently asking. Where does the Torah foretell Esther? Meaning what? Now, where do I find a hint to his name? That's trivial. Exactly. Where did the Torah, which talks about God doing such overt miracles, ever give any indication that there will be a day that God will act behind the scenes? Right? Even that might be too daring for the Torah. The Torah, after all, describes God in, in, God in very active, very out the open terms. So where is there any indication in the Torah that God would ever be hidden? And the answer is, there is a, actually is a passage at the end of Dvarim. God says, I will one day hide my face from you. Uh, and that, with a pun on the name Esther, is, is then said, uh, that's exactly where the Torah says, one day there'll be a story where I'm there, but I'm hidden. So it's, on the one hand, sort of a pun on the name, like there's a hint to Esther in the Torah, but on the other hand, much more importantly, uh, the Torah foretells this theology, that even Esther, which even as the statement that God is hidden is already a departure, so it's something new, and the Talmud says, even that would be too much if it weren't for the fact that the Torah already told us that there would be such a departure. The Torah said, one day there'll be a story where God's face is hidden. Oh, I'm sorry, I ignored you a couple minutes ago. Oh, no, I was going to say about um, that Esther having faith. She's one who had decided to fast, and then sometimes they say fasting will help, you know, God to, you know, bury you upon somebody. Maybe she got the idea of fasting because she did have some kind of faith, something's going to happen if she does fast. Yep, very important. Um, all right, the, the Talmud, the rabbis are also also uh, very concerned very concerned about and they ask a few times, they tell a little story uh, they tell a story that Esther actually wrote to the sages in Jerusalem uh, and that Esther wrote to them and said uh, um, enshrine me forever, uh, write me down forever, in other words preserve my book I'll tell you what has happened to me, I want you to preserve the story, this is a story worth remembering and according to the story in the Talmud, the rabbis write back to her and say, well, actually, we don't think we can include your book because, this is, sounds like a technicality, but we have to think about it, uh, because uh, there's only license for three different, three different uh, occurrences of the war against Amalek in the Bible. We're only going to talk about that story three times, and... And we've uh, already talked about it three times. So we can't include, include that story. <coughs> um, until, here you, have, uh, uh, here you have the text in front of you, number two. Rab and Rav Hanina and Rav Yochanan and Rav Chaviva learned, Esther sent to the sages, enshrined me forever. They sent back to her, Lo, I wrote for you three times. Three times and not four. Until they found a scriptural precedent in the Torah. Write this, a remembrance in the book. Write this, remember it's in the book. Ketov Zot Zikaromba Sefer. I don't remember where that's from. It says, Shmog Yuzayin, Exodus 17. But what's the context there? So that's right after the war with Amalek. Uh, right after the war with Amalek, write this in the book. So they say, well, okay, how many times can we write this in the book? Three times. We have the story of Amalek. We have in Dvarim where it says to remember Amalek. And then we have the story of Saul fighting against Amalek. That's my three times already. So I can't write another time. Say, oh, but when, when, sorry, then we read this verse again. Write this, a remembrance in the book. Write this, what is written here and in Dvarim. Remembrance, what is written in the Nubiim, and there's the story of Saul. In the book, what is written in the writings. 
So this sounds trivial. I mean, it sounds like they're, they're like being ridiculous, right? Uh, until I can find the verse that I can break up into four phrases, I can't include Esther in the, in the canon. It sounds, sounds really nitpicky. The question is, can the Book of Esther really be preserved in the Jewish collection of authoritative books? Yeah. No license for it. So, so what's going on here? Why they're not they're not being so silly? Can yeah, I just ask you a question? Oh, please. When, the, the, when they are quoting from Proverbs, what's the context of that? Nothing at all is relevant. Because they could have done something <laughs> else, like uh, 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 agree. The, the, so far, we're going seven times a year, so it must be seven times. <laughs> right. Totally agreed. And I think that's that's exactly supports uh, the need to think about what they're doing. Because they're not, this is not a serious, technical, but serious issue. We don't have license to include the story of Amalek more than three times. It says so. It doesn't say anything like that. They made this up in their reading. Uh, in fact, it doesn't even, see, it doesn't even say uh, three. It's not three. It which might not even mean anything to do with three. Uh, so it's really a far-fetched reading. Totally agreed about that about that reading of the verse in Proverbs, which means that they're not really trying to, they're not really trying to solve an actual technical problem that they have. There's something else entirely going on here. Uh, they're actually um, how do I say this? They're actually very reluctant to include the Book of Esther in the Bible because they don't think they have the right to. And as they think, not on a technical grounds because we found the verse in uh, in Proverbs, but they really think we're not allowed to include a book like this in the Bible. We have the story of Amalek. What do we know about the story of Amalek? It happened in the desert. It was recorded again in Zvarim. Uh, it it uh, was picked up again by Saul with an unhappy ending. And I don't think that we're allowed to include this other story that you're telling me happened in, in Persia, where you fought against a guy called the Agagi. I, I don't think this is a fair part of the story. Maybe because it's outside the land of Israel. Uh, maybe because it's done by someone who's assimilated, who's intermarried. Maybe there's not an appropriate ending to the story. Uh, Saul, the king of Israel, couldn't do it, but Esther, the, uh, the intermarried queen, can. Uh, but the, the rabbis say, this book is just uh, doesn't belong until, again, until what? What? Right, so how would you say that? I, say, I would say until they find that the Torah itself gave license for it. Right? In other words, we can't, we can't, we, people, can't come in and say, Esther belongs in the Bible. But if the Bible itself says that Esther is allowed in the Bible, then we can put it in. And Esther seems so strange. It seems like a strange book in the Bible. It doesn't fit. Unless the Bible itself said, there's going to be a strange book in the Bible, then we're allowed to put it in. So the only way you can add Esther to the Bible is if the Bible itself licenses the inclusion of Esther. That's really the running theme of these first two texts, is that where do we get Esther from the Torah? If the Torah said, I'm okay, Esther, Esther, then I can put Esther in the, then Esther can be in the Bible. Esther says, put me in the Bible? They say, we can't, we can't. Uh, you know, I don't know, three times, four times. We, we can't put it in. Unless we can find a verse that we can read as licensing Esther in. Uh, what I would say is that this is, they're not really fixated on the readings of this verse or that verse. These are, to some extent, games that they're playing in terms of the readings. What they're really doing is saying, Esther doesn't fit. We have a lot of anxiety about including Esther in the Bible because it, it really is not, doesn't belong. When I look at it and I say, well, I read the rest of the Bible, I read Esther, and it just doesn't fit in the collection. The fundamental point, there's no God here. The hero is intermarried. He must, the hero is female. There's a lot of things wrong here. Uh, what, are we allowed to include such a weird book? Well, the only way we're allowed to include a weird book in the Bible is if earlier in the Bible we were told, yes, 
there will be a weird book, you can put that into the Bible. Uh, so they find this, the Bible itself licensing uh, a strange book. Um, but that's a, you know, I, I think you're totally right. That otherwise, these are just games. They're, they're, like they're making stuff up, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but, and to some extent, the details I think are games, but what they're trying to formulate in sort of rabbinic way, uh, not our prose, but in a rabbinic way, is to, is to express the fact that we know Esther doesn't quite fit in the Bible. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll say it in code, but, uh, but if I can find a verse that says that Esther belongs, then I'm allowed to put Esther in. So what were the reasons that they felt strongly that they should? Like, obviously they felt strongly about right. enough to go justify putting it in. They right. could have just said, no, you don't. Yeah, so I, I wish I, I, I wish we had some record of it. I mean, the bottom line is we don't really know. So we can guess. Uh, maybe it's about Jewish survival in Galut, which after all for them was everyday life. Uh, but they also live in Galut. So it could be, like we talked about last time, about the Dura Europas painting. For the, for the rabbis, certainly in Babel, which is, you know, Esther's home turf. Uh, but even in Eretz Israel, after the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, uh, it might have actually been very important to have a book about survival in the diaspora under a foreign king. Uh, so maybe that's what it is. Maybe it was just so popular that they didn't really have a choice anyway. Uh, we don't really know what process went into Esther becoming part of the Bible. I, I wish I knew more about Nobody it. Nobody really but knows. No one has any idea. Isn't there something that says that in Messianic times, you know, there's going to be two books that are going to stay. One of them is Nicholas Esther. What's the other one? The Torah. What Torah? The Torah. No, no, the Torah and Hanukkah. Torah and Hanukkah. Right. Not, not Torah? Torah and Esther, I'm sorry. And then Torah and Esther, right. So we're going to get the wrong So, yeah. And then eventually, once it was put in, it was found. I think I included it. Yeah. It's important to many. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a fascinating one. It's in the Yerushalmi that they actually say that. In the future, the, all of Tanakh is going to be nullified right. and canceled, uh, at least in terms of its authority, right. um, except for the Torah and, and <coughs> the Halakot, I'm sorry, the laws and Esther. And then another statement right after that says, and all of the festivals are going to be canceled, except for Purim. Um, and it's clear from the context, I'm trying to remember what the, what the context is in the next lines, but it's clear from the context that they're talking about even the biblical festivals. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Pesach, all canceled. Except for Purim. Except for Purim. I don't know what the... I, don't, I mean, I wouldn't look forward to that. I don't know exactly how it But... But it's not only buried in Yerushalmi. Maimonides actually uh, include, includes that in his code of law. Uh, so he, you're totally right to put your finger on that as a, as a key line. As something's happened to the fate of Esther. It's become a wildly popular book, uh, even by rabbinic times. That's a key point. Um, all right, I want to I go on a little bit. Uh, you know, this first two texts made, uh, made one point. But of course, uh, Chazal, the rabbis, had a lot to say about Esther. It wasn't just about the, the general sort of overview of Esther, or the, the basic sort of uh, surface level question of whether it belongs or doesn't belong. They had a lot to say about the details of the story. Um, and I want to look at a couple of lines where they reflect on some of the details. So one, number three, is really... Uh, I really find it to be very intriguing in the sense that it shows that the rabbis were acutely aware of how different Esther was from the rest of the Bible. Uh, number three, Mordechai said, uh, sort of retelling the beginning of chapter four when he comes to the palace gate, says, I'm not moving from here, from the gate of the king wearing sackcloth and ashes, until God performs miracles for me like he did in the past. Shem Shasa Larishonin. Now, according to this midrash, 
Mordechai is very aware of the fact that he seems to be a different kind of biblical character than everyone else. All other biblical characters have miracles happen to them. I don't know if miracles are happening to me. It should be a miracle. So he stands up and he says, just like in old days, God, you used to do miracles, I'm going to stand here until you do a miracle for me as well. Now, of course, there is no miracle. Um, but what this means is that the rabbis are, are, are putting into Mordechai's mouth a consciousness of how different Esther is, the story of Esther.